good evening, everybody, and welcome to the All Portable Discussion Zone. We're back uh, again with you. We were just on live just yesterday, Saturday, with uh, with our guest from uh, Eddie from uh, South Africa. Uh, but here we are again, just a day later. Uh, this show is a bi-weekly live stream all about amateur radio portable ops. And my name is Charlie. Call sign is November Juliet 7 Victor. And with me this evening is one of the show's co-hosts, Dan, KC7MSU. Uh, Brian's a little bit under the weather, so we'll catch him next time. And also, I am pleased to introduce to you tonight's guest. It's Alan Wolke at W2AEW. Welcome to the show. And also, a warm welcome to those of you in the chat. As usual, we really appreciate you being there, and uh, we appreciate your comments. And uh, and also, if you do have questions tonight, please make sure you drop them in the in the chat, and we'll make sure that we post them and get to Alan to answer them for you. Uh, we do convert this show to a podcast about 24 hours after the show is released. So uh, look for that in your regular podcast players as well if you prefer that format. And uh, so with that, let's go ahead and get caught up. Those of you who were watching yesterday will already know what Dan and I have done over the past couple of weeks, but we'll still uh, share with you again and, and uh, let you know what we've been up to. So as far as I'm, I'm concerned, uh, a few weeks ago, Sandy and I went with a couple other uh, couples and we went to St. George, Utah and had a good uh, weekend there, enjoyed some time off, didn't really do any radio stuff. Uh, then Sandy and I, uh, the following week, we hiked SP Crater, which I made a video of. It's a really fun hike. It's uh, basically a volcano cinder thing, and, and it's really steep. It feels like you're just climbing up these this gravel, and and uh, but it's it was very beautiful on top, and, and there was like a lava flow. It's really, really interesting hike, and we did some ham radio up there, tried out the uh, G106 and, and uh, saw how that was working. And uh, an interesting thing about that area is, uh, according to Wikipedia, that that uh, SP crater is used by astronauts to protect, to, to uh, practice moonwalking, or it was used for, for that purpose. So that's pretty cool. So anyway, I'll let Dan talk to you about what we did uh, just on Friday. Cause that was uh, also, I went with Dan and did some other stuff. So I'll just turn it over to Dan for a minute and he can, uh, he can fill you in. Yeah. Friday, uh, <clears throat> got to get out and do a couple extra sodas. Uh, so it's been pretty uh, exciting last couple of weeks. Uh, Charlie and I did two uh, on Friday. We did uh, Carroll Spring Mountain as well as Timber Camp. So Carroll Spring is a nice drive up. Uh, we operated a QRO because we wanted to see uh, hit some DX. Uh, I've never really had the DX experience, uh, but we uh, ran on 10 meters and boy, it was fantastic. Uh, even single sideband, uh, I did really well. I ended up with uh, 10 DX contacts. So let's see, I got, uh, let's see, France, Austria, a couple from Germany, Czech Republic was in there, uh, Spain, and uh, South Africa. I got South Africa. So that was really great. Uh, so after that, we uh, did a hike up after that. And uh, I am still sore today uh, <laughs> after doing that timber camp, but uh, got to operate some uh, 20 meters there and Got a few uh, summit to summits out of it too. So, uh, been a couple of uh, exciting weeks the last couple weekends. Yeah, cool. All right, all right. We've already uh, uh, went around the horn, and it's back to you now, Alan, to uh, share with us what you've been up to in ham radio the last couple of weeks before we ha uh, jump into the actual questions. Sure, absolutely. Well, again, thanks for having me on. This is this is a lot of fun. 
But uh, yeah, unfortunately, my my ham radio activity isn't nearly as exciting as what you guys have been up to. So that's all right. I'm on the workforce, and I try to mix in a lot of my portable operating activity during my travel since I since I'm on the road for work. Um, but we did. Uh, my wife and I took a trip up to upstate New York into the Finger Lakes region of New York State um, two weekends ago, and uh, we wound up. I wound up going out to a, a couple of waterfall parks up there. And it'll activating. The weather wasn't great, so putting up my antenna in the rain wasn't that much fun. But uh, <laughs> yeah. to make, do a couple activations that way. But yeah. most of my uh, my portable operating is is Poda, not Soda. There aren't too many summits here in the flatlands in New Jersey, um, at least not uh, close by anyway. So most of my activity is in some of the local parks. I've got one that's about uh, ten minutes away. That if I've got a, an hour to spare, I'll run up there real quick and do a quick activation and come back home and in time to get my chores done. So yeah, that's cool. Hey, yeah. well, you know, while we're on this topic, let's just talk about it a little bit. I'm, I'm curious what you use for an antenna and a, and a ham radio and all that. What, what do you, what's your, your go-to equipment when you do this? So my, my portable, portable operating is almost always with a Elecraft KX2. Yeah. So I've got a little KX2, the, the shack in the box kit that I bought. I got it about a year ago. And you get all uh, the, all the, all the, Whistle bells and whistles, everything, or we yeah, just yeah, it's of... got yeah, it's got yeah, the built-in battery, the built-in tuner, um, and uh, you know, I, I've got a, I do mostly CW work, so I've got a little uh, Bamatech uh, uh, TP3 key uh, paddles that I use. Yeah, and then antenna-wise, it all depends on the park I go to. Um, I, I probably carry with me at least five different antenna options. Really, um, nice. and. Um, some of them are just variations of wire antennas, um, you know, a couple of different uh, NFED half waves and NFED, uh, uh, you know, random wire type antennas. Uh, I've got the little AX, the little AX1, little tiny vertical uh, yep. that uh, for really quick activations. I've got, I made a little homemade window mount so I can stick it on the window of the car. So if I've got a really quick stop, I'll throw the window mount on, sit in the car, do my activation and get back on the road. Um, but then uh, the other vertical I carry is the Super Antenna MP1. Oh, I, I don't know. Uh, but I, I, I replaced the the little five foot whip it came with with a ten foot MFJ whip, and um, and that works really well. I can set that up pretty quick. And then again, I have a couple of uh, NFED half waves and a throw line to get things up in a tree. So um, okay, so, the, well, so that's the main kit. So what uh, what what's your favorite antenna that you like to use the most? What's your go to one? I mean, you say it's varies, but yeah, my, well, my go-to if I have, if the conditions allow is a 40 meter end fed half wave because uh -huh. it presents a good match on 40, 20, 15 and 10. Um, and it's, you know, it's a good size antenna. It's pretty efficient and it, I can deploy it pretty quickly as long as I've got a spot where I can either throw it up as a, uh, as a sloper or sometimes put up a center, a center support and make and set it up like an inverted V. But uh, sometimes I don't have the space to do that or, you know, and uh, then I'll just go to uh, the MP1 vertical. Those are the two yeah. that I use most often. Perfect. And uh, there where you're at, what is, uh, where do you find most of your contacts are uh, from? So uh, it's almost always uh, east of the Mississippi. Um, you know, because being on the East Coast, I will get some European DX uh, from time to time. But most of my operating is is either on 20 or 40. That's where I spend most of my time, and especially on 40 meters. And the antenna being fairly low to the ground, it's kind of NVIS. So I'll get a lot of you know um, you know East Coast and out into you know Ohio and Indiana, Wisconsin, Missouri, things like that. 
but then you know sometimes i'll get that second hop you know into washington state or something like that but uh that doesn't happen very often so it's yeah. a pretty local thing and yeah. uh, of course being on the east coast we do get spoiled with the uh you know the european dx because it's yes. not that much of a hop compared to you guys <laughs> yeah yeah lucky that way it's uh, yeah. it's cool Okay, well, let's let's hop in a little bit and talk a, a little bit more about you, maybe some of your background first. And sure. uh, I know when you were younger, um, I know this just because I've done a little research on on your background. I know oh. when you were younger, you uh, you in high school, you kind of this that's kind of that was kind of when you were first exposed to a lot of the 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 stuff uh, later in your life. And so, like, you were first licensed. Tell us about when you got for how you got first licensed, when you were first licensed, and kind of just a little bit about that that period in your life sure so yeah actually it was uh it was high school uh i worked at a part-time job in a tv repair shop so i kind of got you know, my i cut my teeth on a tech 465b two-channel oscilloscope um i had an electronics professor or electronics teacher i guess in high school we call them teachers an electronics elective teacher who was a ham uh charlie uh, wa2slk and uh, because he had the brilliant idea, he was, he was a pretty avid ham. He said, well, you know, I've got an electronics class here. I could start a amateur radio club. And if I do that, I get all the free child labor I want to build <laughs> antennas and things like that in the courtyard <laughs> of the high school and all that kind of stuff. I can build a shack and that. And so I, I got my novice license in high school um, and, uh, you know, some problems with learning the code at five words a minute. We could talk about why that was a bad thing back then. But uh, but that kind of got me started. Uh, in electronics for real. I mean, I did a little bit of hobby stuff before that, but uh, but uh, uh, WA2SLK was a, a big mentor to me and, and really kind of set me on this path that I've been on for the last 40 some odd years. Yeah, cool. And then so your teacher... Um... So then, after high school, then then where did you go? I mean, did, there was a was there a break in your in your uh, ham radio? How yeah. much ham radio did you do in high school, by the way? Well, we we actually back then, um, I think it was QST had a a little QRP radio kit set that you could build, like a power supply, a tuner, a transmitter, a receiver, and and part of our class was to build and get those things up and running. So I did a little operating then with that. Uh, when I I went to college. Uh, at uh, New Jersey Institute of Technology, NJIT in Newark, and got a little involved with the radio club there, but got more involved with the studies and things like that. So ham radio kind of took a back seat for a while. And it wasn't until, you know, several years after I graduated that I it kind of got rekindled again and I got back into the hobby. So I took a couple of year break there. Um, I don't remember exactly what year I came back in, but I was originally licensed as KA2IZZ. There was a lot of double dits and double dots and fault <laughs> sign there, but um, and then when I came back, I was KC two BOG, and then eventually got the the vanity call uh, AEW my initials. So I figured uh, okay. when stuff starts leaking out of my head, I'll still remember my call. So. <laughs> yes, yes, that's, <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, I, you know, I had an electronics class of sorts. It was it was actually called a technology class, but. I wonder how common that is. Do you, I don't know if Dan or you know, how common was it to have an electronics class in high school? I it didn't seem like it was that popular. We had electronics uh, in high school and um, it was pretty popular class, but uh, you know, unfortunately I, I don't think you see a lot of that kind of uh, those kind of classes anymore, which is no. really unfortunate. Yeah. I don't think, yeah. Cause like I said, I, I mean, you see it like in the Votech schools and things like that, but not in the regular high school, you know, they'd see it sometimes, you know, or in the, in the Votex, but we're, so we're lucky that we had that. And, uh, and I said, I was lucky that the teacher was a ham, 
but uh, you know, I got to play with some equipment when I was there. Um, you know, I got my first oscilloscope out of the back room. There it was an old uh, Allen B. Dumont cathode ray oscillograph, which found a home in my bedroom with uh, the inputs hooked up to the, <laughs> the speakers of my stereo. <laughs> so I could, uh, yeah. you know, and you put like Pink Floyd on X Y, and I just got this little, <laughs> thing, you know. Yes, yes, I've seen that before. Yeah, yes. that's fun. <laughs> That's fun. Okay. So let's see. So uh, would you say that's what influenced you on the course that you took as far as your course in life, choosing electronics and all that, or was it yeah. something else? Yeah, I think that like, that kind of really started it. Um, and uh, you know, that coupled with uh, even working in the TV repair shop, you know, my, my, my first job there was just to kind of help move things around the showroom and things like that. I eventually worked my way back onto the bench you know, my, the job that they had me do was the ones that none of the techs of the, you know, wanted to do at the time, which was, you know, pulling the tuners out of the TVs, pulling the tuners apart and buffing all the contacts on the, on the mechanical tuners. Because, you know, you, you got, all had those TVs, if you're old enough to remember, you, you had to wiggle that the channel knob selector to kind of make it nice and clean because the contacts got dirty. Yep. So my job was to pull those tuners out, open them up, buff all the contacts with a, a Dremel on a low speed you know, on a variable speed control, put them all back together and then get everything realigned again. So, but, uh, you know, just, um, you know, that experience of being in the lab and, uh, and understanding the importance of, you know, uh, equipment, test equipment and being able to use it to help understand how circuits work and what happens when they don't work and how to troubleshoot things. Um, you know, that, that just, I just grabbed onto that. So, you know, all the, the TVs that came in that, uh, people didn't want to spend the money to fix. They went home with me, and I promptly disassembled <laughs> them. And that's how I built up my kit of parts: is is parts that I desoldered from old TVs and things like that. So, in fact, uh, my first uh, my short my first shortwave listening antenna was a long wire antenna that I made from unwinding the deflection yoke from a, oh. a television tube. So, so that was that your was, antenna. Wow. Yeah, that was, I was strung up in, I couldn't put anything up outside because my, my mom and dad really didn't know what I was up to. So I, I kind of poked a hole in the, the ceiling of my closet into the attic and I ran this wire around the attic. So they didn't even know where it came from. So that, that's, <laughs> that's the, that's the, you tricky that guy, you. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Um, let's see. So, then after you graduated and you have your, is it a bachelor's in electronics engineering? I think? Yeah, yeah, I got a bachelor's in uh, electrical engineering at NGIT in 1985. And uh, I went to work for a startup company that was making um, long wavelength optical semiconductors. What that is, is LEDs, photodiodes, and laser diodes in the 1300 nanometer wavelength uh, range that were primarily used for uh, data communication, all fiber optics, data communications and telecommunications. And I worked on the other side of the house that built the electronics to take those optical devices and turn them into optical transmitters and optical receivers for these uh, datacom and telecom optical networks. Oh, very interesting work it sounds nice. like. Yeah, it was, it was fun. And like I said, I, I was lucky there to have a really good mentor. Uh, I, I got hired there out of college. And the guy that hired me, a uh, really nice gentleman named Pat Clark, uh, he, he had his his main career was 30 some odd years with the Bell System at Bell Labs. And uh, when after he retired, he kind of took this job at this startup company and and I, I, he kind of took me under his wing. And between him and some of the other uh, more experienced engineers they hired, I really learned an awful lot about, you know, circuit design. And, you know, so I did a lot of uh, both, um, uh, you know, discrete 
you know, circuit design and building and prototyping, as well as eventually getting into uh, analog integrated circuit design. Oh, and wow. uh, I even got my first uh, U.S. patent on a, a circuit that I designed for uh, for a fiber optic receiver, which is pretty cool. Wow, that is cool. That's really cool. That's that's neat. Yep. Um, so let's see. So you've established that you have had uh, quite a bit of experience with electronics, and and we'll, we're going to dive a little bit into the, your YouTube channel and what that's all about a little bit later. But I wanted to ask you a couple of uh, more philosophical, well, not philosophical, but a couple of questions that have kind of been on my mind. I, I'm curious to find out about you. And yeah. uh, one of them is, what was your most challenging um, troubleshooting problem that you've had uh, over your lifetime, I guess, that uh, with it comes to electronics? Oh, wow. Well, there's so many ones I could pick from, but if we pick one that kind of is uh, kind of ham radio related, this goes back probably 25, 30 years ago. Um, uh, yeah, maybe 20, 25 years ago. Uh, when I first got licensed, the rig that I lusted after was a Kenwood TS830, right? That was, okay. the, that was the rig to get, right? But I couldn't afford it when I was in high school. So I finally got one later in life. And then, um, but the one I got wouldn't work on CW. And uh, if you put it in CW mode, um, well, I should say it wouldn't work. It, it would work, but there wasn't any side tone. It's like, okay, this should be an easy fix. Figure out what the side tone is. So I pulled the rig apart and looked at it. And there was a on the mode switch where you switch from you know CW wide narrow and upper and lower sideband. There was a wire that was broken. It's like oh there it is. That's a problem. Sod the wire back on. Put the whole rig back together. Turned it on, and the side tone worked all the time. It didn't turn off. <laughs> <laughs> so whoever had the rig before me had that problem. And rather than fix the problem, they just they said oh okay I don't use CW. I'll just cut this wire. Problem solved. So now I was down to finding out what the real problem was. And uh, so, I, you know, so I'm going through the rig and I happened to lay my hand across the key while I was kind of reaching around and doing something with my, my, my fingers or my arm bridged the contacts for the key. And when I did, when I did that, the side tone went off. I pulled my uh. arm off the key and it went back on. I put my fingers across the terminals of the key and side tone went off. So that's odd. So turns out that the open circuit voltage on the key uh, is about 60 volts, but it's very, very, very low current. So it didn't, you didn't really feel it, right? But right, it's about yeah. 60 volts at a very high impedance. So it turns out that when I put my fingers on it, it would drop it down to about 20 volts. So at 20 volts of open circuit, the transmitter didn't key, but the, also the side tone oscillator didn't come on, okay? But at 60 volts, the side tone came on. So I took a look at the circuit and the side tone is actually a like one transistor, it's called a phase shift oscillator, where you're basically feeding back the output of the collector through a couple of RC you know, filters, if you will, yeah. to cause yeah. enough of a delay to cause the thing to oscillate. In that loop is a switching diode. And that switching diode what has, is what's connected to the key. And it turns out that, the, you know, to make a, this long story a little bit shorter, is that when there was about 60 volts reverse bias on that diode, which should have right. looked like an open circuit, there was get, you were getting some leakage to the diode and, and basically closed that circuit and the side tone oscillator worked. But when you reduce the voltage to about 20 volts, then the, you got enough blocking on the diode because the leakage was down low enough that the oscillator didn't work. And then, of course, when you hit the key, it would forward bias that diode and everything right. would work properly. Right. So that so it was just an odd, you know, thing to kind of come across and just, you know, start to reinforce the idea that the old television text used to tell me is that, you know, a, a wet pair of fingers or your nose can be as an important troubleshooting tool 
as a DMM, a VOM, a VTVM, or a scope, right? When you're troubleshooting <laughs> circuits. And that was the case in this case, you know, a pair of moistened yeah. fingers across that those those uh, key contacts was yeah. the powerful debugging tool that led to the solution. So then did you just replace that switching diode or, or... Yeah, I replaced the diode and that was it. That was yep. it. That was the whole problem. Yeah, <laughs> so. cool. Very cool. All right, Dan, you have any questions at this point? Well, I I got a several, but I guess uh, one of my questions is, you know, as you go along and especially in amateur radio and things, what's what's the most important, you know, accessory to have, you know, it for electronics troubleshooting? I mean, everybody goes immediately, you know, gets a scope or, you know, multimeters and maybe, you know, signal generator or a spectrum analyzer. But what's something or a few items that are, you know, the go-to things that, you know, people should make sure they consider and buy good quality pieces that are accessories to those items? Well, I think, uh, well, first and foremost, some kind of a, a DMM or VOM, right, uh, is, is you know, just to check battery voltages, check continuity, things like that. Um, and, and I, and I'm a believer you really want both. I mean, the uh, you wanted a DMM because it's fast and easy, it's quick. You, know, you don't have to use too many brain cells to use it. But that being said, not using brain cells when you're working on electronics isn't necessarily a good thing either. So right. I always like having an analog multimeter around as well. I, I really like the old Simpson 260s. Yeah, the there you go. Just over my shoulder right over there. <laughs> so I've got uh, about five or six of them. But um, for a couple of reasons. One is... They make you think. That's a good thing. Um, they they also very important when you're working on electronics and and especially if you're tuning things up is they've got that analog vernier movement, right? If you're tuning things up and changing parameters and things like that, it's a lot easier to watch a meter movement move back and forth to peak or dip something than it is to watch numbers count up and down on a DMM. Um, now, of course, there are things you got to think about when using a, a VOM that you know the loading is not going to be as a high impedance as a DMM is. You got to know what range you're on and all that kind of thing. But again, that that's all causing you to think and think about what the meter is going to do to the circuit when you're probing it, right? And, and understanding how the circuit's going to react to that. Um, that's important. So some kind of basic metering, again, a DMM and a VOM, I think one of each is is a key. You know, the next logical thing would, depending on what you're doing, whether you're kind of leaning just towards being, you know, a more efficient ham and setting your station up, and you might be looking at something like an antenna analyzer or a nano VNA or something like that. Or if you're somebody who likes to tinker and build things and troubleshoot things, then you'd probably be better served by a basic oscilloscope. And, uh, you know, I, Again, you almost have the same argument, if you will, on the scope side of things. Do I go old school analog CRT-based scopes or do you go one of the more modern digital scopes? And each have their advantages and disadvantages. You know, I think that uh, the old analog scopes, of course, we use them for, for 60 years before we saw digital scopes come in. So you certainly can right. do a lot of electronics work with them, right? Um, it's just yep. a matter of again understanding what the what the controls do and how to make the scope do what you want it to do and show you what you want to see, and also to understand, um, you know, when you're asking to do something it can't do. Same thing holds true with digital scopes, right? Uh, you've got to understand the the 
what might happen with aliasing and things like that, undersampling with digital scopes. It doesn't really happen with analog scopes, but just like any tool, whether it's a DMM, a VOM, a scope or whatever it might be, a useful tool, again, is your brain. You've got to understand what that instrument is doing, because if you ask it to do something that is that it wasn't either designed to do or it's outside of you know, the realm of the settings that you set it up for, it's not necessarily going to tell you that. It's just going to lie to you. You've got to be smart enough to recognize that lie. Yeah, you know, that's I was just going to say that that was kind of, I think, my problem and also several, most of my colleagues when we were in college at uh, MCC doing electronics, we could understand the concepts, but when we had to understand how to use the test equipment, it was very difficult to, to really match those, you know, and it took time to, to figure that yeah. out. And, and well, that was, still, that was I think part that... of the motivation for my channel too. We'll get into that later, but yeah, yeah. that's part yeah. of my motivation as well. Cool. Well, I know Dan has another question, but let me just do a follow-up question. So then um, you, you mentioned the DMM, both a, a DMM and a VM, and then, and then an oscilloscope or a, or a nano VNA. Um, would you say those are the same? Is that kind of whether you're doing electronics or what, what if you're a kit builder? Is it the same thing? Is it the same news? Same thing on your bench regardless? Yeah, I think uh, of a kit builder, I, I think a scope could be really helpful. If you're yeah. if you're into kits that are doing a lot of you know digital I/O and things like that, you're playing with little Arduinos and microcontrollers. Maybe something more a little more specialized, like a bus pirate or something like that, to generate uh, you know low speed serial bus data and analyze low speed serial bus data. That could be really helpful. So it really depends on where you're going with the kits. You know whether it's you know, a lot of digital, very little analog, or vice versa, or it's got some RF. You know, it, all, it really comes down to um, what, you know, where your interests lie. And that kind of, you know, it's the same thing with cars, right? If you, if you like sports cars or you like, you know, you know, hike, you know take, following trails back into the woods, that's going to dictate what kind of car you get, right? Yeah. Uh, same thing, you know, the, the types of things that interest you when it comes to, you know, electronics are really going to dictate what are going to be the most important tools for you. Yep. Yep. Uh, Patrick says Alan's scope for dopes presentation was very helpful for me. He really has a knack for explaining complex topics. I would agree with that for sure. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I've done probably 10 different versions of that scopes for dopes presentation. I think the very first time I gave it kind of and where it got recorded, it was down actually at Fort Monmouth in New Jersey. Um, it was actually to the New Jersey antique radio club. And, um, and I've done, I've given, given that same talk to other radio clubs and things like that over the years. But that was the very first time I did it. And it was kind of cool because we were actually in an area that used to be part of Fort Monmouth called uh, Evans area or Camp Evans. And it's actually where the U.S. Army Signal Corps um, was stationed and where they did a lot of the early work in the 40s uh, on radar. And what's really interesting is that one of the guys that worked in the Signal Corps on that facility was a guy named Howard Bollum who later became one of the founders of Tektronix, where I work today. So it was actually kind of cool. Yeah, very cool. All right, Dan, what was your next question? Well, I was kind of curious about um, uh, logic analyzers and where they fit in. Um, I, you know, I think it kind of depends a little bit like what you were talking about. It depends on where you are and what you're trying to do and how much you want to get into the digital side. Um, especially in amateur radio, but things are really shifting as far as, you know, towards more processor based mm -hmm. uh, types of, of amateur radio, as well as, you know, everything else is. 
but you know it's so difficult to find you know logic analyzers that you know can do 16 channels that don't cost you know a major fortune still that that's one area where it seems like price point really hasn't uh, fallen all that much no and it's one of those things that we've almost seen the life cycle of the logic analyzer kind of go through here because um you know being i've been in I work for a test and measurement company and uh, you know, and we've, we've kind of seen that as well. I mean, Tektronix um, used to be one of the market leaders in professional logic analyzers and we, and quite literally we don't make them anymore. And part of the reason is that a lot of the tools when you're doing, you know, lots of digital lines at the same time, type of type of applications for logic analyzers are now done internally with internal tools with that are within the FPGA environments and things like that. So the, the need for an external logic analyzer is really kind of by the wayside. So you find kind of find some of these you know, logic analyzers now available in the used market because not as many people are buying them. But that being said, um, you know, another big application area for that is when you're looking at a lot of these low speed serial buses that are used to control a lot of or, you know, or listen to sensors and control things like an I squared C bus or SPI yeah. bus or something like that. And you might call that a logic analyzer function, but you're starting to see a lot of that going into, you know, uh, basic oscilloscopes now. The digital scopes have got serial bus decode and triggering capability now. Um, so for the company I work for, you know, well, most, most of the major scope manufacturers have got mixed signal versions of their scopes, like a mixed signal scope, which has both a combination of analog uh, inputs as well as logic inputs. And it could be a separate logic probe or, you know, that, or a pod, if you will, that plugs into the scope to give you eight or 16 cha digital channels along with your analog channels, or there, there's other schemes that are involved with, you might actually just have a, a physical probe you can plug into a channel and it converts that channel to a logic input. So, but there's, that's where we're seeing the shift, I think, when it comes to a lot of the digital, you know, the traditional logic analyzers are shifting more towards kind of the, the serial data bus analysis, tr triggering and decode stuff, as opposed to dealing with, you know, 100 parallel digital channels at the same time now. Yeah, very cool. Good stuff. Um, let's see. Let's talk about Janice here. Janice Emery says, Alan, any book recommendations for somebody who knows nothing about electronics that may be related to ham radio besides the AWRL book? Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, the AWRL handbook does a good job on, you know, a lot of the fundamentals, especially as the fundamentals as they apply to amateur radio. Another book that I really uh, kind of pushed, uh, will recommend to people oftentimes is a book called The Art of Electronics. Uh, the authors are Horowitz and Hill. Uh, Paul Horowitz, yeah. the professor at Harvard and uh, Winfred Hill, I think he's in the UK, if I remember, remember correctly. But the Horowitz and Hill book, Hour of Electronics, again, it covers the basics. It covers a lot of practical aspects that you don't find in textbooks. It, it isn't really heavy on the math, which a lot of textbooks are. If you go to you know, the regular electronics learning textbooks, um, they're really heavy on the math. The Art of Electronics isn't. It's really kind of focused more on the practical aspects of it. So I'd recommend that one. And one that was really instrumental for me uh, when I was in high school, just learning electronics were, these are the ones you'll, you'll have to look on the, you know, on the ground in the boxes underneath, you know, underneath the tables at the ham fest these days to look for these things. But the books that were the electronics notebook series by uh, Forrest Mims, they used to be sold by Radio yeah. Shack. Yes. Those, in fact, those were great books. Those are absolutely fantastic books. In fact, you can get 
almost the whole series on PDF form online if you do some if you do a Google search. There you go. Yeah, yeah. highly recommend those as well. Yeah, yep. they're they're a very good resource and um, the uh, art of electronics. That's kind of the been the Bible standard for for years now, and yeah. and it's really not bad to to read. It's um, you know, and it's it's you know broken out well so you can find a lot you know topics that you're most interested in and it's very thorough yeah and it, like i said it really covers from a, a very practical standpoint in terms of you know how, how you approach a problem or and just thinking about like when they first describe the operation of a bipolar transistor they, they describe it as transistor man right you, you 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 talk to transistor man through its base and he's got a little knob that he's turning to control how much current's going from collector to emitter you know the little transistor man in there you know so it's they'll, they'll start there and then work its way into you know a bit more of the more accurate representations but it, it it's a very readable book and in fact um i remember when i i first got the second edition or third edition whatever they're up to now uh i brought it with me on vacation and my wife looked at me like what are you doing with that book on vacation? <laughs> this is this is the good stuff. This yeah. is why we take yeah. vacations so we could sit on the beach yeah. and read this. Right. <laughs> so, Alan, I, I'm curious. What are your thoughts about um, Doug Demois' books? Uh, like the like, see, what is it? W1FP's notebook stuff. You know, like he had. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So the um, yeah, definitely th those are great books as well. Um, there's a number of AWRL publications um, that are, are really good, but I don't. I guess I, I don't know if they I consider those as absolute beginner books. Right. So yeah, talking about electronics. Yeah. Similarly to um, the um, shoot, what are they? they're over my bookshelf over here. Let me go grab them real quick. Here. Yeah, sure. Because the other ones I'm thinking of are. Uh, yeah. I really like Doug DeMoss stuff. He's got one called the QRP notebook and one yes. called the RF design notebook and one's yep. called the, uh, yeah, those are really good. And they're very, they're more, they're definitely more tailored towards amateur radio. And yeah. I guess the other ones I was thinking of, and again, as you get more and more advanced and you really want to get more into RF circuits, the books by Wes Hayward oh, yes. know, are, are fantastic. Like you know, the experimental methods and RF design, that one there, this that's one you can still book. get. Um, the one that's kind of tougher to find is this one here, the solid state design for the radio amateur. Yep, and we were one. talking earlier before the show started about um, uh, about Bill Mara and uh, the Solder Smoke podcast, and they talk about these right. books all the time. So they do. Yeah, you can see I got I got dog leaves in, in mind here because things that I've been reading on want to go back to. So this great books like there. So yeah, yeah, very good. Thanks for that question. Um, uh, uh, Janice. All right. Well, let's let's top, uh, jump right in a little bit more maybe now and talk about the uh, the YouTube channel. So uh, what what how did you why did you start the YouTube channel? How did it get started and all that? Oh, it's great. Well, it got started. Um, I had a friend of mine years ago, probably more than 15 years ago, had picked up a used Tektronix oscilloscope. And he said, how do I use this delayed time base feature on this scope? You know, because it's kind of like the the on the old analog scopes. This is how you did a zoom, right? They can do a zoom on a digital scope. You did it with a delayed uh, second uh, second time base. So I started to describe it to him on the phone. He said, "I don't really get it." So well, tell you what, I got this new iPhone here. <laughs> Let me take a video of it. I'll figure out how to get the video to you. So I did. I took a video of how to do how to set up this control. And I so how am I going to get this video to him? It wound up being a pretty long video. And there was this new thing called YouTube. wasn't new, but new to me. <laughs> Let me put this thing on YouTube, and I'll just send you a link. So I sent him the link to how to do it. He he said, "Oh, that was great. You know, it got me got me off square one." 
And then about a week later, I looked back at the YouTube video and it had been viewed like 150 times. Wow. In yeah. a week. And I was like, wow, there's people that actually want to learn this stuff and see this stuff. So that got me thinking about maybe this would be a good medium for, you know, because I, I like teaching. I like kind of explaining topics and things like that. So maybe this would be a good medium to kind of get started. So I started putting a couple of basic tutorials together and that's that's kind of how it started. Yeah, that's great. That you know, it's funny uh, you say that right was when uh, Thomas uh, K4SWL pops in, who yes. also has an absolutely fantastic uh, YouTube channel as well as a, a a great website with the with the text form stories and stuff like that. So he says, "Howdy everyone. Great to see Alan. Fun fact, I know him as the Blue Antenna Wire Man." So you have to explain <laughs> that one to us. Thanks for thanks Thomas. That was funny. Well, Tom, Thomas, nice nice to see you here and glad you made your you got your trip to Hickory all done uh on the road. I know I was chatting with Tom, Thomas earlier tonight, but um yeah, it's a funny story cuz um earlier this summer I was at a ham fest. And I scored a reel of wire, blue, blue insulated wire, that looked to me to be very, very similar to Polystealth 26, right? Polystealth 26 is great because it's lightweight. I like lightweight wire antennas and things like that. It looked to be similar to that in terms of, you know, the stranded construction of it. It wasn't like just four strands or eight strands. It was like the 19 strands of really thin wire. So it was very flexible. It had a really tough blue jacket on it. And it was one of these, one of these big, like, 16 inch industrial reels and uh so I, I picked it up at a pretty decent price and um i made i made a couple of antennas with it and then i'm, I'm talking with thomas a, you know a week or two ago he's like yeah i got this this uh onion kit from i think it was from um, km4 cft uh joshua out in uh, um colorado joshua i'm gonna get his name wrong now sorry about that um <laughs> It's on the tip of my tongue, but anyway, uh, he said he's he got this onion, but I don't. I got to get the wire to put put on it. I was like Thomas, I got you set up. I got I got about a mile of this wire on this this thing, so I, I spooled off a couple of hundred feet of it, and sent it down to him, and and he was able to put an antenna together with it. So, oops, sorry about that. I was I was uh, <laughs> instead of me texting it out, I'll just I I uh, was trying to reply to the smoke and ape. Uh, good friend, he says fantastic show, guys. I was just saying, you know. I'm glad that glad that he's here as well. So oh, it's Jonathan. It. It's Jonathan out in Colorado. Sorry about that, Jonathan. I knew Great. it would come to me. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, so um, let's see. So your YouTube channel. Let me see if I can bring it up here real quick. Let okay. me let me show it to folks. You know, if, unless you're living under a rock, maybe you might not uh, be that familiar with it. But I think that most people kind of know about the channel. But so let's see if I can pull it up. Here it is. So I like, by the way, I like that you're on the oscilloscope here. That's pretty fun. <laughs> well, if you, if you dig, dig through my videos, you'll see how I did that. Yeah. So it's yeah, actually I've... a circuit that converts NTSC analog video into the X, Y, and Z waveforms that I fed into an old 485 oscilloscope and projected my picture on the screen and then took a picture of that. So it is just, that's fun. <laughs> that's a really fun. Yeah, one. it's a good one. And then, and then your uh, your bench is right here. It looks like yeah. so it's 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 as messy as as expected. I mean, I mean that's yeah. actually clean. That's a really well organized. That's one actually that's actually a very clean picture of my bench. It never looked like that. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Even right now, it doesn't look like that. But I actually, know. the scope that you look if you look at that banner graphic all the way over to the right is a a, a curve tracer. The scope next to that, um, that's the one that that picture was taken on. So. Oh, wow. 
cool. But but you'll notice with the with my videos, I don't I, I very rarely appear in front of the camera. Most of the time, you're just seeing my hands and things like that. And that that's what I try to do with the, the channel is to make it like you're just looking over my shoulder on the bench. Right. You know? That's, and, that's uh, perfect. So, and then scroll back a little bit towards the top. One thing I'd like to point out to people because they may not, it might just escape them. Um, right next to where my little circular graphic is there, you'll see a link, a blue link to a PDF file. That's actually a PDF of every video that I have on the channel. I've seen this. Yeah. And, 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 it, that, and, and it's the first part of it is listed by number. And then the second half of it is actually kind of basic by broad topic. And I have to thank uh, Dino KL0S because he's the one that initially put this index together because he was an, a, a, an avid viewer of my channel. And probably when I had about 120 videos up, he had put this index file together and I you know, thanked him profusely for it. I said, look, I'll pick it up from here and just and continue it on. So so in the, the footer on every page is a thank you to, to, D, to Dino for putting that together for me years and years ago. <laughs> Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, I didn't even realize that was there. So this is very handy. It was nice. It's a PDF file. I update it every time I put a new video together. And because it's a, you open it up in Adobe or whatever you open up a PDF in, you can search for keywords. And then every one of those blue lines is a link to a video. So it's very easy to find what you're looking for. You know, the one of the other things that I really enjoy, and, and like I said, I, I enjoy your perspective of how you shoot these videos. But I also really enjoy, you know, that you use a notebook and you write things down and you have, you know, a thumbnail sketch of what you're going through and what you're explaining. And you go through that before, you know, you even, you know, operate yeah. a piece of test equipment most of the time. And I really enjoy that perspective as well because it's very educational. Yeah. And that goes back to uh, the Forrest Mims, you know, engineer's notebook series. It's the same kind of a thing. In fact, you'll notice that my... Typically, all my note pages are quadrule paper. And yep, I use that all the time. That and everything's kind of done in block letters. And that that's very much because that's yep. how I learned it through the Forest Mims books. So, yep. Okay, very cool. So let me, oh, let me bring that back up here just a minute. And let's talk a little bit about, more about, okay, so you have this, this page. So there's obviously a multitude of topics mm -hmm. and so how do you how do you kind of organize all that like well there's a several points what is your first of all what is your goal in creating this uh you know it might have changed over time but i know initially it was yeah i'm going to teach a few people about oscilloscopes but yeah. uh, where, where what's your goal now at this point is it changed well, yeah the goals changed a little bit but I, what i like to do i mean I've got a, my selfish goal is that I typically only do videos that I've got an interest in. Yes. <laughs> you, know, you know, some people say, Hey, okay, could you do a video on this topic here? It's like, well, I don't really, it's not really my, in my wheelhouse or it's not, so it was, they'll go on the list, but they'll be kind of far down on my list. So, but the goals are something that I find would be an interesting topic and something that's isn't really taught in other places. You know, like I said, learning, like you mentioned, you know, you when you were in school, nobody taught you how to use the scope. Nobody taught you how to properly compensate a 10x probe, right? you know, what, what the effects of, you know, attaching this meter to your circuit would do to it. These are the, the kind of practical aspects of things that nobody tells you, you know, is, right, is yeah. one kind of goal is try to clear some of that up and to try to just take away some of the, the, the mystery of it. You know, to, because everybody, if you approach it from the math and you approach it from a, like a textbook thing, it, 
you don't get you don't really get a good feel for how a circuit works or how a component works or what's going on and you know to me having that understanding of you know almost feeling what's going on where the rubber meets the road you know i like to kind of convey that because I, that's where my passion lies in understanding how things work and uh, and i hope to just kind of pass that along and it really ranges runs the gamut from really basic electronics tutorials like you know basic characteristics of components like diodes and capacitors and things like that to basic circuits and how certain circuit certain popular circuits work and then some more esoteric topics on rf and a lot of test and measurement i've got you know some troubleshooting things in there anything that i think hey this might be an interesting topic i'll i'll try to plan to do a video around recognizing the fact that doing that job will take me five times longer by making a video of it as a you know, versus just going and doing it myself, right? I think one of the more recent ones I did is I built a little onion kit from Jonathan out in Colorado. You know, the video took me, you know, it probably took me a total of four or five hours of, you know, putting the thing together, going out and tuning it. Whereas if I had just done it, if I just built this, built a little kit, put the heat shrink on it, went out and tuned it, I probably would have been done in a half hour, 35 minutes, right? But it took me several hours to do because I want to make sure I had the shots right. I was describing what I was doing, explaining what was going on, you know? So so it's a really a trade-off between the things that I want to do myself and of, of those things, which ones I think other people might get something out of, and I'll put the time in to make a video around it. Yeah, and it's interesting because I've... Anytime I, I talk to somebody uh, in my our community of ham radio community and even the electronics community, um, if I mention this website or this uh, YouTube channel, do you know about Alan's uh, YouTube channel? The vast majority say, yeah, it's great. You know, I've learned from it. And then the other half that said no, as soon as you point it out to him and show him there, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen, I, don't, I didn't know that's what you're talking about. This is Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's not it's nondescript. It's just my call sign in small letters because I, when I when I started it, I didn't, you know, I didn't name it. Hey, this is Alan's great electronic YouTube blog, you know, because right. I, you know, I didn't know what it was going to be. And then after it, after it started getting more popular, I was like, well, I don't want to go changing the name of it now because people kind of know it is what it is. So if you know it, you know it. It's one of those things if you know it you know it but it's not like the eev blog or these other ones that you kind of know because of you know you know because it's got a blog and all that kind of stuff yeah and, it's, uh, so it's it's one of those things that if it's if you know what it is great if you don't hey hopefully it gets to you by word of mouth type of thing you know yeah. it, it reminds me of uh we had this this uh this uh these this family that made tacos in their backyard and it was called the, it was called the backyard tacos and okay. the only way you could find out about it is if you if you were on a text group or, or you know, sometimes they post it. So it was like this kind of yeah. underground thing where you kind of would, would learn about it. And and so, you know, but it was it was very popular. Then once they created the store and they actually got a big sign that said Backyard Tacos, it didn't feel it didn't seem like it was all that cool anymore. So it's kind of like the, yep. I feel like it's well, kind of the I, same I, thing. <laughs> I don't have I, I don't, I'm not trying to be aloof or be cool about it. It's just it is what it is right now. And I, and I you know, I you know, it's 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 a hobby for me. And, you know, I don't have, you'll notice that I don't have Patreon, you know, right. I don't, I don't ask for, for money and things like that. I mean, if people want to donate to it, there's a link there to donate, but, I, but I don't ask for that because it, it's a hobby for me. And if I did Patreon or something like that, because people ask me, why don't you do that? I, I'd pay you, you know, a dollar a month or something like that for your content. If I did that, I'd feel obligated to I produce see. content on a more regular basis. You know, and to me, I think if I was obligated to do something, I was like, all right, I better do something now this quality of what I put together might suffer. So I'd rather just 
put out there, what I can put out there. I'd love more people to join, but you know, I'm not going to, you know, I don't put kind of clickbait headlines on my graphics for my videos or things like that. You know, if people recognize what it is for, you know, and they get something good out of it. Great. You know, I'll, I'll put a link out on Twitter or something like that, or a Facebook page or something. If I put out a, a video that I might thought might be interesting, but again, it's a hobby for me. And, uh, you know, I hope that people are kind of getting something from it and uh, you know, if they find it useful, they'll share it with their friends. Yeah. So the, you, you mentioned that you pretty much make videos of things that interest you. Um, and then you say that sometimes, you know, that people ask you for stuff and it goes at the bottom of the list. And, and so uh, my question here is, is what are the things that are the most popular, maybe the most requested or the, are the videos that people really, the, your best, Best performing videos, I guess. I haven't looked and seen, but what are they? Yeah, what's interesting is the my my best performing videos had been actually the most the most popular one had been a, a nine minute video that described how to intuitively understand the operation of most op amp circuits. Oh, okay. Okay. So the basic negative feedback, how it works, why it works, that type of thing. That video had been viewed probably close to eight hundred thousand times. Up until just recently, that was the most popular video on my channel. But I think the most recent one. It was just overtaken by a video of how to terminate uh, an Ethernet cable. Oh yeah! <laughs> wow. So simple thing: how to strip the cable, what order you put the wires in, well, what length is to trim them back, the proper crimper you need to use to put them in there, and and put the you know the insula insulation displacement connector on it. That video I just noticed just a week or two ago has now been viewed more times than my op-ed video. <laughs> Wow. It's, it's interesting how that, how YouTube works, right? Because some of my videos that I wouldn't have ever guessed also have done much better than the ones yeah. that I put a lot of time into. <laughs> yeah. A fun, a fun one. And I had a video that I, that went what I would call geek viral. Yeah. Okay. Cause typically if I put a video up, you know, it, it may, now I get, typically if I put a video up, it gets, you know, three to three, 4,000 views the first day. And then it starts tailoring off. And then depending on the video it might continue to, to ramp or whatever. But it usually gets a couple of thousand views a day. But um, I remember I did a video several years ago from the roof deck of a beach house that we were renting. And I was packing up because we were going to pack it up to go home. And I did a short video of how to coil up the coax so you didn't get twists in it, like the over-under method, right? It was like a two-and-a-half-minute video. I put it up, and the first day it was viewed like 1,500 times. The second day it was viewed 50,000 times. Whoa. Like, what happened? So somebody <laughs> posted it put a link to it on the life hacks reddit subreddit uh, yeah. and it's, oh that's how oh okay reddit oh what's this reddit thing so i don't know <laughs> so, so uh, crazy but that 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 video kind of brought my channel geek viral for a, a short period of time that's really cool that's really cool <laughs> yeah i remember that video and people were talking about that and it was referenced all over the place for several weeks it was pretty yeah. amazing yeah but yep. uh, yeah, but yeah, but you know, between that and then the, the figure eight method on my fingers to roll up you know, the wire and coax and things like that, I'll do that one too. But so, yeah. all right, so let's get caught up on chat here real quick, and yeah. then Dan, I'll get you a chance to ask another question, and then probably I'll have one more, and that'll probably take us to the hour. We need to redo this format sometimes. Sometimes I wonder if an hour and a half is not better than an hour. It seems like we always don't have enough yeah. time but uh anyway we uh, even want more <laughs> <laughs> yes thomas says alan's channel is one of the best on youtube oh, couldn't you, agree more couldn't no, agree no, more no. well i'll uh, tell you thomas's channel is one of the reasons i'm doing poda today so 
Oh, good. Yeah, he he's Thomas has inspired a lot of people, including myself. Yep. Yeah. And and then there's Vince from um, Ham Radio Workbench, right? He's he's yeah. one of the one of the folks on Ham Radio Workbench podcast. If you haven't heard of that, you ought to subscribe. Yeah. He says Alan's the real deal, down to earth, tells it like it is. If you aren't subscribed to this channel, I have only one question: Why not? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Vince. I've been a guest on the, uh, the workbench there too in the past. That was fun too. Yeah, so. those guys are brainy, man. They, yeah. I, I don't know if I'd ever be a, a guest. Because, uh, <laughs> you got to be brainy for that. <laughs> I, I, I was lucky to work uh, uh, Vince because uh, we're on the opposite sides of the country. But uh, I had a, a an activation not too long ago. I actually got uh, Thomas, Vince, and then my friend Robbie W1RCP. The first three contacts in the activation. Well, that was good. I'm going wow. home now. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> All right, Dan, uh, do you have any uh, other questions for Alan? Um, I, I was kind of curious. There's um, been a lot of, uh, especially it seems like electronics uh, at the you know university levels that have kind of grasped onto, I can't remember how they license it now, but it's public domain pretty much. So uh, teaching some of their electronics classes what do you think about that uh format for well, learning electronics well i think any any format that gets people interested in uh in playing with hardware on their own on their own i think is useful now it, if it's just in order for people to study up and get a degree and things like that to me i, I like the in-person things and again i being you know, a practical person where the rubber meets the road. You know, I always want that education piece to be coupled with actually doing something with it, right? Building something, testing something, because you learn an awful lot more from your mistakes than you do from your successes. So you, you take a lot of classes online, you ace the tests, but if you don't know which end of the soldering iron to hold when you go into the lab, you know, what have you learned? So, <laughs> right. and it's funny because even like when the Arduino started becoming really popular, like the Arduino Uno came out, and like the first project they have you do is to blink an LED, you know, as a yep. regular program, make an LED blink. And my my when it first when that first happened, I was like, you know, you just used a half a million transistors to blink an LED, right? Show me how to do it with one or two, right? Or, but or I, I the push changed button. my tune on that because I think you know anything that gets people playing with hardware, whether it's you know with the microcontrollers and and doing things, you know, as a combination of programmatic as well as building some circuitry or doing things that are purely analog or a mix in between, it's all good. So I'll, I'll yeah, ask I, follow up. Oh, go ahead, Dan. Yeah, go I, I think in the, you know, the way electronics is now, you know, everything is so packaged, but it, fundamentally it all comes back down to, you know, analog circuits that are just packaged in, you know, in big chip uh, formats that, yes. you know, are, Group together to do functions. There's, there's an infinite you, number of you understand the small ones, one. you know, you can build it. Yeah, there's an infinite number of voltages between zero and one. So, <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right. So my question then is, I'll, it'll be a kind of a follow up to Dan's in a way. Mm -hmm. So for those of us who didn't go to electronics school, but who see the importance of learning how an actual how radio actually works and how an antenna actually works, not just being an appliance operator and wanting to break out of that. Uh, there's got to be a place to start. I mean, yeah, there's the book stuff, but mm -hmm. uh, there's got to be some projects that you can gradually move from one point to another and, and kind of build your knowledge. Where, where would you say what project might somebody start with and, and how would how would they graduate to something more more difficult to as, as a kind of a learning process? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of I mean, to build something that's useful 
that you can actually do something with as opposed to just blinking an LED, right? Um, you know, some of the, you know, when it comes to radio stuff, you know, building your own antennas, you know, uh, and then tuning them yourself and understanding the, the, the implication of lengths of elements and things like that uh, can certainly be very educational. Uh, building an antenna tuner or a matching network can be uh, pretty educational uh, because tackling building a transmitter or receiver, those can, you know, there's a lot to understand in terms of what goes on behind the scenes of those things. So, um, uh, but it, it's starting small, you know, uh, building a little keying circuit or an interface between, you know, your sound card and your radio, for example, if you want to do some digital work, you know, you can go out and buy a rig expert or something like that, but building something like that isn't that hard. You know, there's a lot of plans that are out there, um, but anything, but, you know, don't fear, don't be afraid to fail, you know, um, and again, some basic, basic equipment, you know, a, a digital multimeter and ultimately a scope at some point gets you a lot of the way there. Uh, if you're into the RF stuff, something like a nano VNA can be pretty daunting up front. The, the learning curve is pretty steep at the beginning, but there's a lot of videos out there that kind of get you started off, you know, off of square one to understand what that's showing you, showing you. So there's a lot of ways to go depending on where your interests lie. Uh, but like I said, don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to ask. There's a lot of good resources out there. If, you know, I always tell people, if there's something you've got a good question on, let me know. And if I, you know, and I get a lot of questions about the same thing that be, that kind of boils something up to the top of my list of the next topic I want to do on a video. So, yeah. All right, so there's a loose end we got to tie up, and then we'll uh, we'll wrap it up. And the loose end is uh, learning Morse code. You learn the wrong way, and then you learn the right way. What do you mean by that? So I learned the wrong way. I learned to get five words a minute. So that's slow enough that you can map the dits and the dahs to what a dit and a da looks like. And right next to that is the letter A, right? And unlearning the pattern matching that you do in your head so that so that when you hear a character, you hear the character, you don't hear the pattern and you don't match the pattern to the letter. Unlearning that method is really hard once you learned it the, the other way. So I always tell people, if you're gonna learn Morse code from scratch, you know, do the whole Farnsworth, Farnsworth method of character speed, 20 to 25 words a minute, maybe more, but 20 to 25 is probably a good starting point and just open the spacing up. So you learn to recognize the pattern of the character not the dit, the dit and da, you know, pattern that you're going to map out into your head to the letter. Um, and then there's a lot of tricks that people will follow, sometimes little mnemonics and things like that, whatever really works for you at that point. But I would say that the most important thing is if you're going to start out from scratch, learn at a faster character speed. Then I, said, I, I regularly listen, I think I mentioned earlier, I regularly listen to like the Morse Ninja, Kirk Zogelman videos. And I'll, I'll listen to those just for practice in my head at, at 25 words a minute. When I operate CW on POTA and things like that, or even here in the shack, I typically operate 18 to 20 words a minute. Okay, I'm not comfortable going beyond that. But I'll listen to character speeds higher than that because if someone answers me, I can usually hold it together long enough to pick out a call sign, you know, that type of a thing. Um, and then maybe ask somebody to QRS and slow down a little bit for me. Uh, but... You know, there's still a couple of letters that sometimes my brain goes back to that mapping thing. And, you know, it's a, it's a very hard thing to unlearn if you learn it the wrong way first. Yeah. Cool. All right. We're about done here. But uh, Alan, how does somebody 
obtain uh, the shirt that you're wearing. And for those who are only uh, listening, it's the yeah. uh, it's Alan's shirt. It's, uh, it's yeah. Well, they have to, you have to talk to my wife because she bought them for me for Christmas. So it, I think she did. She just bought them like on Etsy or something somewhere. It's not something I sell. I don't have merchandise for my channel. Yeah. I just have a okay. couple of these shirts that she got me for my birthday and Christmas. So that's they're a limited right. edition and they're just mine, unfortunately. So. All right. I'll reach out to your wife and ask her. There you go. <laughs> Cool. All right. Well, it's been a pleasure having you here, Alan. It really has. It's been a good time. I think we've learned a lot. Um, Dan, go ahead and take a minute and then we'll have Alan, let Alan have the last word. All right. Well, uh, as Charlie said, Alan, appreciate you being on today. Uh, it's great show. Learned a lot and uh, really enjoy your, your YouTube channel. Whenever I, you know, find somebody that has never heard of it before, that's the first place uh, that I point them for electronics and uh, they always get something good out of it. So thanks for all your hard work on uh, all the videos that you've produced in the past. I'm always looking forward to the new ones. No, I appreciate that. And thank you. I see Kyle uh, uh, is in the chat here as well. I enjoy your channel as well or Kyle, but you know, all these guys, Kyle, Thomas, um, you know, Vince, you know, all these guys were, you know, they're, they've kind of been an inspiration to kind of keep, you know, a bit more amateur radio content in my channel as opposed to just basic electronics and test and measurement stuff. Uh, but uh, again, a lot of the, a lot of the videos producers out there like yourself are an inspiration to me to kind of keep doing not only the videos that I do, but also kind of exploring new aspects of the hobby. As I mentioned, I think it was Thomas's videos are kind of what got me into POTA about a year and a half ago. And it's, you know, you know, it's been a reinvigorating thing for me in terms of the hobby. So, and hopefully people find that with my channel as well. So thank you. Yep. You're welcome. Yeah. Thanks for coming on again. And okay, guys, uh, thank you uh, for being here and joining us tonight. Um, Alan is a great guest. Make sure you go check out his YouTube channel and if, and uh, definitely, you know, maybe subscribe if, if you have an opportunity, if, uh, if it's something that interests you. And uh, we, we appreciate uh, the time that Alan has, has spent in making all these videos. It's been a, a, an inspiration to us. So, Alan, stick around for just a minute as we end the show. And uh, to all you in chat watching and, and, uh, and making comments, we appreciate you being here as well. So we're all going to say uh, 73 to you guys, and we are out of here. Bye-bye.